This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. It is so great to hear your, your voices joining together in, in praise. So a few weeks ago, we started a new series from the Gospel of Luke called Tell Me the Story of Jesus. We are, are walking through the life of Christ and especially focusing on some, some passages that are unique to the Gospel of Luke. Luke has a lot of material that we, we don't see in the other three Gospels, and that is the case with the text that we're looking at today as well. We're going to be in chapter 7 and verses 36 through 50, and this involves an anointing of Jesus. There are similar anointings that we see in the other Gospels, not this one. This one stands on its own. It is unique, so different Different woman, different anointing. This is a, one that is found only in Luke's gospel. Much forgiveness, much love. Much forgiveness, much love. Luke chapter 7, and follow along in your copy of God's word as we, we read verses 36 through the end of the chapter. Then one of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with the perfume. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She's a sinner. Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, say it, teacher. A creditor had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. You have judged correctly, he told him. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she, with her tears, has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Lord, we pray that as we look at this beautiful text today, 
that we would see where we are in this story. Lord, that you would, you would make this open up for us and that your, your spirit would bring, would bring conviction. Lord, that it, your spirit would bring comfort or challenge or whatever it is that we need here. Lord, but our Bibles are open and our hearts are open for you to do your wonderful work through your word right now and the power of your spirit. So Lord, you speak, help me to get out of the way so that your word and your word alone would be heard. And we ask it in Christ's name, amen. I'm so glad we're doing a, a, a class here on, on art and faith. I've come to see in recent years just, just how God is glorified in the arts. And you know, when it comes to paintings, I used to not really know uh, what the questions to ask when, when looking at, at paintings. And, and I've kind of learned some questions that have really helped me appreciate uh, paintings so much more. Like, for instance, you can stand back and you can look at a, at a painting and you can just kind of let the whole scene just wash over you. Or you can kind of uh, ask the the question, you know, what kind of a, is the artist making a statement through this? Is there, is there a statement that's being made about um, life or uh, culture uh, here? Or, or if there are people in the painting, you can, you can try to, to focus in on the, the, the people and, and, and discern their emotions and ask, is there a story that is being told through this painting. And you know what? When we look at these stories of Jesus, those are, those are good questions to ask too. When we look at these, at these stories, what, what, is this, what is this whole scene? And then come in for the close-up and ask, what, what is the story that's being told and how do I fit into this, this story? And when we look at, at this particular passage, wow, we talked at the beginning of this series, Luke, as he tells these stories, is just like a literary artist, just, just painting the scene. I love what N.T. Wright says about this particular passage. He says it's full of sheer artistry that brings the gospel up in three-dimensional, vivid reality. So what do we see here in this Incredible text. First of all, let's look at the setting of it in verse 36. Kind of sets the scene here. It says, Then one of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, twice in verse 36, we see this term Pharisees. You see it again in verse 37. We tend to think, when we, as modern Bible readers, as Christians, when, we, when we're reading the Gospels and the term Pharisees come up, immediately we think of these guys as the villains of the Gospels. And it's natural that we would think that way because they tend to come across most of the time as opponents of Jesus. And so naturally we kind of think of them as the, the, the bad guys. But what we need to understand is that in that culture, in that time, that's not the way they were thought of. 
The Pharisees were not thought of as the, the villains or the bad guys. They, they were viewed as you know, kind of patriotic. They loved their country. They didn't want to bow the knee to Rome. They were like a Jewish renewal movement. They wanted people to, to take their religion seriously and take God's law seriously. So they had broad popular support. And if we don't understand that, then we miss the power of Jesus' criticisms of the Pharisees. He's not criticizing this group that everybody hates. He's criticizing a group that enjoyed broad popular support. Here's another thing that we miss out on if we just simply dismiss the Pharisees as villains. We should be asking what we have in common with them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's a song that came out in, I don't know, in the 70s or 80s by Don Francisco called Everybody Else But Me. And it went like this, everybody else but me, everybody else but me. He was talking to those hypocrites and Pharisees, everybody else but me. <laughs> when we read the Gospels and we come across the Pharisees, we should not dismiss them by saying, oh yeah, those people. We need to be asking, what do we have in common with those people? Now, this takes place at a meal. It says in verse 36 that they were reclined at the table, which is important to get the view here of what's happening, the mental picture of what's happening they would not have been sitting around a table like we do in Western culture where they're sitting up in chairs around a table. Didn't work like that in Middle Eastern culture. Um, then or now, a, a lot of times, you, the, the table is almost down to the ground or, or on the floor itself. And they would have been reclined on pillows. They would have their left elbow on a pillow, they would have been eating with their right hand and their legs would have been extended behind them, which is important to kind of see because the anointing that happens happens when Jesus' legs are stretched out behind him. It says that, uh, that Jesus had been invited to this, uh, this meal, this, 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 this banquet by, by the Pharisee. That would not have been unusual for a guy like Simon to invite a visiting rabbi to come uh, to a, a meal to discuss uh, the Bible, that, that, that would have been a fairly normal thing, not unusual. What happens next is anything but usual. So the second thing we see is the incident in verses 37 through 40. Let's look at verses 37 and 38. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet weeping and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with the perfume. I never saw this until I was studying for this uh, passage this week. But the word town here, in verse 37, a woman in the town. It's the same word that we saw last week at the beginning of chapter 7 in verse 11 when Jesus comes to the town of Nain. And you remember, he raises this young man from the dead. They're probably still in the same town. The scholars believe that they have not left Nain at this point. 
Now, one would think, you know, he has raised a guy from the dead. That would tend to tamp down skepticism. But see, there's a funny thing about the human heart. We have stubborn hearts. In fact, what we're going to see later on in this gospel, in chapter 16 and verse 31, Jesus is going to say, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. And someone has been risen from the dead in that very town. And yet, Simon is obviously not persuaded about who Jesus is. It says here in verse 37 that this woman who, who, comes, who comes in uh, was a sinner. And the, the, the context of this and the way that Luke uses it, it's obvious that she was known for notorious sexual sin, almost certainly a prostitute. Now, prostitution in the first century um, as it is in many parts of the world today in sexual slavery and things like that, it's, it, was, it tended to be very, it, it was a lot of times it was tied in um, with slavery. Incredibly sad. In fact, just this very morning, you know, in my quiet time this morning, I'm kind of in my Bible reading plan, part of what I'm reading through right now is in Leviticus. And, 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 and this morning in uh, in, in Leviticus, I was reading that you know, it was, the command was for fathers, do not sell your daughters into prostitution. Well, the reason that that law is in there because it, is because that was a huge thing in the ancient world. You know, people would be in you know, dire economic straits and daughters would be sold into prostitution. So a lot of times, prostitution in this culture was, was bound up with slavery, it tended, the women who were, women who were prostitutes tended to live uh, kind of desperate lives very much on the, the margins of society. And then and now, the story behind every prostitute was usually an incredibly sad story. And we don't know all the circumstances with this woman, but we can pretty much know this is an incredibly sad story. Well, at some point, the Lord Jesus has entered her story. At some point prior to this night, she has heard Jesus teaching, and she has heard a message that is unlike the religious teaching that she has heard before, where she's simply been written off and condemned. She has heard a message that, that, that God loves people like her, that there's an opportunity for new life. And as she hears this message about the possibility of, of new life and God's love and forgiveness, then, then she, her heart is strangely warmed. You know, she, she feels as if life has become new. She, she, that she has been forgiven, that life has, has, has begun again, that she's been born again. And, and so she hears that Jesus is at this meal, and, and at meals like this, again, another cultural difference. We would you know, close the door. We have like our own private space, you know, in Western culture. It would not have been like that. 
the, the door would have been open. People could come in and they could stand around the back and they could listen to the discussion that was happening at the table. So she hears that Jesus is going to be there at the table and she just thinks, he has changed my life. I've been forgiven. I've been given this new life. What can I do to show my love for him? What can I do to honor him? What can I do to show my gratitude? And so the, the most valuable thing that she has probably is this jar of, of perfume, ointment. And so she comes and her plan is to, she knows that Jesus is going to be there. She knows his feet will be extended behind him. Her plan was to come and anoint the feet of Jesus. But then in the process of doing that, she just loses control of her emotions. She just begins to weep uncontrollably. Her tears are falling on his feet. And then just in a very unselfconscious, unplanned way, she lets down her hair and begins to wipe her tears with her hair. Now, in the West, we have an expression, let down your, let down your hair, let your hair down. And what we mean by that is relax, loosen up. But in that culture, it meant loose in another way. A woman who let down her hair would have been viewed as as sexually loose, and given the fact that they already know her reputation from that community, you can imagine the things that they are thinking. Simon and the people at that table do not see anything beautiful about what is happening. They see it as disgusting. New Testament scholar Joel Green says this, the woman who enters Simon's house, whose sinful state is evident to all, comes into this scene like an alien communicable disease that's how they viewed it that's how the people at the ta- that's how the most of the people in that room would have viewed it including Simon but Jesus doesn't view it that way Jesus sees the, the love that is motivating this this is an incredibly beautiful thing so let's ask the question what is the difference between the way that Simon views this and the way that Jesus views this Well, both the Pharisees and Jesus talked a lot about holiness and sexual morality. It's just that Jesus took it much deeper. (laughs) The Pharisees did what legalists do today. They focused on the external, right? External things that they could control, right? So that they could say, hey, we're better than you. Jesus took it to the heart, right down to the heart. So you see Jesus saying things like this, Matthew 5 and verses 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In that same chapter in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, 21 and 22, he says, you have heard it said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. You see Jesus saying things like this to the Pharisees in in Matthew 23, 25 and following. Woe to you. 
scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup so that the outside of it may also become clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of bones of the dead and every kind of impurity. In the same way, on the outside, you seem righteous to people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. It's no wonder, he says in in Matthew 5, 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. So what Jesus is talking about is that we need a new heart. It's not a matter of just kind of cleaning up the externals. We need a new heart that is being transformed by God's love. That was one difference. Here's another. Jesus believed in transformation, (laughs) redemption. The the Pharisees tended to see people in silos, right? Good people, bad people, and good people don't have anything to do with the bad people. Jesus looks at people and sees them not just for who they were, but for who they could become by the grace of God. New Testament scholar Daryl Bach says, it is not what the sinner is that Jesus sees, but what the sinner could be through God's love. So they looked at people differently. Verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She's a sinner. In Simon's worldview, Jesus can't be a prophet because a prophet would know. He would know what kind of woman this is. He wouldn't allow her to get near him. Well, not only does Jesus know all about her past, he knows what Simon's thinking. In that very moment. Verse 40. Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Very interesting. Never saw this until this week. Jesus replied to him. (laughs) So he hadn't said anything at this point. What's he replying to? He's replying to his thoughts. He knows his thoughts. Like he knows our thoughts. Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, say it, teacher. And now we come to the parable, the parable. Often when Jesus wanted to open people's hearts, he would tell a story. He would tell a parable. And listen, this is really crucial to understand. Jesus wants to open Simon's heart here. This is not just like a gotcha moment where he wants to you know, entrap Simon. No, he wants to open Simon's heart. He loves Simon. There are examples of other Pharisees Coming to know Jesus, Nicodemus, who comes to Jesus at night in, in, in John 3. Nicodemus ends up, you know, helping to prepare the body of Jesus for burial along with Joseph of Arimathea. He had become a follower of, of Jesus. Most famously, Paul, a Pharisee, who writes much of our New Testament, 
right, had a background as a Pharisee. Luke and Acts tells us about other Pharisees that came to know him. So listen, Jesus, Jesus wants to open Simon's heart. And so he, he tells a story. Verses 41 and 42. A creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Now, 50 denarii would have been about two months wages in that culture. 500 denarii would have been almost two years wages. But both debtors have something in common. Neither can pay. And now comes the moment when everything turns. We'll look at other parables of Jesus in this series, and we'll see there's always a moment in a parable where everything turns, jaws drop, eyes bug out because something unexpected happens, and this is the moment. The, 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 the creditor becomes a benefactor. He just cancels the debts, just wipes them out. Just forgives both. You don't owe me anything. The question Jesus now asks is, which of them will love him more? And again, I never saw this quite this way until this week. But the design of that question, which of them will love him more, is already subverting Simon's whole view of things. As Simon sees the scene play out with this, with this woman, the word love never comes into his mind. But Jesus knows it's all about love. So that question is already subverting Simon's entire worldview. Again, I, I love what New Testament scholar Joel Green says about this. Jesus summons Simon to reconsider the meaning of this woman's actions. Not the repayment of a debt as though she were a slave girl or prostitute, but an expression of love that flows from the freedom of having all debts canceled. An expression of love that flows from the freedom of having all debts canceled. Praise God. Which of them will love him more? Simon answers in verse 43, I suppose the one he forgave more. You have judged correctly, he told him. Now we see the revelation. Jesus now dramatically turns to the woman and he asks, Do you see this woman? Do you see this woman? They've seen nothing else for the past few minutes. Everybody was transfixed by what was happening at, at Jesus' feet. They think they've seen, but no, they have not seen. They have not seen her. Do you see this woman? Verse 44, turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. 
Now, it is very telling that Simon has ignored these basic expressions of courtesy. The stuff that Jesus is talking about here, this was basic stuff. Every host, and by the way, in the Middle East, the one thing you don't want to be considered is a bad host. But Simon has blown off just these basic expressions of a gracious host. Every host provided water so that people could come in and they could, you know, they could wash their, the, the, the person would, come, the guests would come in, they would, you know, wash their, 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 their dusty feet. Every host would provide water for that. You know, every host would give just a, a basic a kiss of greeting. It, it would be the same thing as us shaking someone's hand. Just do it without even thinking about it. You know, every host would provide uh, inexpensive olive oil for them to uh, anoint their, uh, their, dry, their dry scalp. These are just kind of basic expressions uh, that any good host would, would do. And yet, Simon's done none of them when Jesus came in. It was outrageous. But this woman... She doesn't provide water for Jesus to wash his feet. No. She she provides the water of her tears and washes his feet with her hair. She doesn't give a a standard kiss of greeting on the cheek. She She is doing the most humble thing imaginable and kissing his feet. She doesn't offer inexpensive olive oil she offers the very best that she has, this, this expensive perfume. She has been the gracious host that Simon failed to be. She seeks to honor him and show her love in every possible way that she can. Why? Because she understands the depth of his forgiveness. God has opened her eyes to the depth of her sin and the depth of his forgiveness. And she understands, I've been given a new life. My debts have been canceled. A debt that I could never pay, a debt that was crushing me, has been wiped out. It's been canceled. He has set me free. He has given me a new life. And I love him, and I want to honor him. I want to show my love in every way that I can. Verse 47. Jesus says, therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. You see, her, her actions that night are a response to the forgiveness that she has received. She is not being forgiven because of anything she does at night. She was forgiven before she ever walked into that room. Her forgiveness, her, her, her actions her, of, of love toward Jesus are a response to the forgiveness and the new life that she has already received. Colossians 2 and verse 14 says he erased the certificate of debt 
with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. Her story is our story. If you were in Christ, it's your story. Your sin debt that you could never pay has been forgiven, canceled, wiped out. You are forgiven and free. And when you begin to understand that, the response of your heart is going to be love. Love. Love for Christ. Love for others. Why are some Christians so unloving? What makes you think they're Christians? Francis Schaeffer said the mark of the Christian is love. 1 John 4 and verses 7 and 8 says, Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. And what is the wellspring of our love? It's his love. 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. And so therefore, we call, we're called to treat other people with love and forgiveness and grace because that is what we have received from the Lord. Ephesians 4, 32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Verse 48. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Jesus says this not because she needs assurance that her sins are forgiven. She knew that before she ever walked in the room. Jesus says this for the benefit of everybody else who is listening. He wants them to know. He wants Simon to know. He wants the people at that table to know and the people that are behind the table against the wall. He wants everybody in the room to know. This woman belongs to me. Her sins are forgiven. And if you know me, you are to regard her as your sister, not as trash. He wants them to see her the way that he sees her. Verse 49. Those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? We saw this come up before. Remember in chapter 5 when they tore a hole in the roof and the friends lowered down the stretcher with the paralyzed man and Jesus heals him and what does he say? Your sins are forgiven. They say, who can forgive sins but God alone? Exactly. Exactly. And who can say to a corpse, as we saw last week at the beginning of this chapter, who can say to a corpse and command him, command a corpse to live, and he lives? Who can command that but God alone? Who can speak to the wind and the waves and say, peace be still, and there is stillness on the sea? Who can command the wind and the waves but God alone? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Exactly. What does this say about the identity of Jesus? What did we see last week? God is visiting his people. In Jesus, God is visiting his people. Verse 50, 
he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Peace, shalom, wholeness. Go in the wholeness and the well-being of God that only he can give. Go in peace. Let's pray. Where do you see yourself in the story? If you are not yet in Christ, how can we experience the salvation that he offers? What does Jesus say here in verse 50? Your faith has saved you. How, how was this woman saved? How can we be saved? The same way. It's through faith. It's, it's by turning to Jesus and placing your life in his hands just as you are. And he won't leave you just as you are, but you come just as you are. And you're joined to him by faith. And his perfect righteousness, which you could never have, his perfect righteousness is credited to your account. So that when God looks at you, when a holy God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin, he sees his son and your faith in his son. Turn to Jesus. Trust him. Welcome him into your life. He died on the cross for sinners like you and me. He rose from the dead that we can have eternal life. Turn to him and trust him. And if you are in Christ, where are you in this story? Now naturally, we want to see ourselves in the position of the woman here. She's a sympathetic figure in the story. And, and yes, part of her story is our story. <laughs> if you are in Christ, your, debt, your sin debt has been canceled. It's true. And so yes, her story is, is our story if we know the Lord. But part of what Luke wants us to see here is how much of Simon is in us. Because it's so easy for us as believers to begin to get smug, to become overly familiar with the, with the amazing grace of God so the grace is not so amazing anymore. It's easy for us to be smug and self-righteous. It's easy for us to look down on other people. If we're honest, we would have to say Simon's a part of our story too. What's the Spirit convicting us of today that we need to turn from? May our love for Jesus be rekindled. May we be blown away once again by the meaning of the gospel and what it means to have our sin debt canceled. And may we respond with the kind of love, unbridled love for the Lord.
that we see in this text. In just a moment after, after prayer, we're going we're gonna to stand and sing about God's amazing grace in response to this. Let God deal with you right where you are, but it could be that you want to come and pray with someone. And we're here for you. And so, Father, we, we pray that you would work now in our hearts. Lord, thank you for the amazing grace that we see in the gospel. Lord, may we get it. May our eyes be open to the glorious reality of your love that we would respond with the kind of love that we see here. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia.